Good morning. Go ahead and have a seat and uh, we'll open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for uh, the good news of, uh, of your son and his uh, kingdom. And, uh, and so we're grateful for an opportunity this morning to consider your providence and your sovereignty as it uh, uh, collides with uh, the, uh, the various kingdoms of man. So I pray that you would help us, that uh, you would encourage our faith this morning as, uh, as we just see uh, just kind of the, the history of your plan of redemption worked out uh, among the church. And so we love you and we're grateful for this opportunity to gather today. I pray that you would bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class, where uh, all year we are studying uh, church history. And one of the things that we have, uh, have seen over the past few months is this uh, strange, complicated relationship uh, between the church and the Roman Empire. It's this, this complex, winding uh, tale full of all kinds of, uh, of, of twists and turns. Uh, originally, there is this uh, uh, periodic persecution that breaks out. And then there's this period of tolerance where uh, Christianity is uh, tolerated by the empire. And then within uh, a, a generation of tolerance, it actually becomes the preferred and official religion of the empire. Over just the, the course of a few centuries, it has gone from persecution uh, to being the preferred official religion of the empire. And then this story uh, that we've kind of seen will continue in our lesson today, which is about the fall of Rome and the subsequent road to what is called the Holy Roman uh, Empire. But first, before we really get into that, let's kind of back up and summarize what we've talked about uh, thus far over the past few months as it relates to the empire. So we began in the second and third centuries, which was uh, noted for a few things. On the positive side, it was a time of growth for the church, this organic growth of the early church. It was also a, a time where you see the rise of church fathers and the apologists and martyrs, guys like Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origen. So that's the positive side. You have all of these developments. But on the negative side, it was also a time uh, as mentioned, of periodic persecution, as well as a time of uh, the rise of various heretical groups like the Gnostics and the Marcionites. If none of that uh, rings any bells, go back and listen to some of the previous uh, teachings. Then we turned our attention from the first and second centuries to the fourth and fifth centuries, which were interesting for a number of reasons. Among them, I think I'll give five, was the conversion quote-unquote conversion of Constantine and, uh, and then the subsequent Christianization of the empire. That was uh, uh, very significant. Uh, second, the split of the empire. In Constantine's day, he splits the empire into the eastern and the western regions with the west centered in Rome and the east in uh, uh, Constantinople, the capital city named after Constantine himself. Third factor that was really interesting in the fourth and fifth centuries uh, are the rise of the various Trinitarian, Christological, and Soteriological heresies that we've talked about. Fourth is the response of the church to those various her uh, heresies through the prominence of church fathers like Athanasius and Augustine, and then also the emergence of this concept that we studied that is the ecumenical uh, councils. And so we saw four ecumenical councils in those uh, two centuries, the fourth and fifth centuries, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and 
Chalcedon, those four happen to be the most influential and significant of the ecumenical councils, and all of them take place in the fourth and fifth centuries. And then lastly, this period is also historically significant uh, because it is the time in which you have the fall of the Roman Empire. So at its height, the, uh, the Roman Empire was this massive uh, uh, reality that stretched all the way from the Iberian Peninsula, which is modern Spain, I guess for, uh, from your perspective it would be this way, uh, modern Spain, all the way through North Africa, and then into Mesopotamia, which is uh, modern Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. But for various internal and external reasons, uh, the empire had been wobbling for centuries. And so a few of those factors, a few of the reasons for the, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire included uh, invasions by, uh, by barbarian tribes, the Goths, the Visigoths, the Germans, the Vandals, and the Huns. If you've heard of Attila the Hun, uh, he was influential in uh, bringing about the fall of the Roman Empire. There's also various economic problems and an over-reliance on slave labor, and so they have to continue to extend the empire in order to, um, in order to have slaves for their labor. There's also government corruption, and then also, as we mentioned, the division of the eastern, uh, the empire into east and west. As, uh, as Jesus and Lincoln said, a house divided can't stand. And so for all these reasons and more, Rome was in trouble already in the days of Augustine, as we talked about uh, earlier. In fact, it was the fall of the, uh, the, the empire, or the fall of Rome in particular, which prompted his massive, uh, massive work, the city of God. And so in 410, when Augustine was in his 50s, the city of Rome was sacked by the Visigoth king Alaric. And this was the first time in 1,000 years that Rome wasn't in the hand of Romans. So that's very significant. And then in 455, the city was raided again by the Vandals. And then finally in 476, the emperor at the time, Romulus Augustulus, was deposed. And from that point on, no Roman emperor would ever again rule from Italy. And so this will be important, this fall of Rome and so forth will be important today uh, as we consider kind of the road to the restoration of at least the imperial ideal if not the actual empire itself, at least the restoration of the imperial ideal in what is called the Holy Roman Empire. But first, let's continue on uh, chronologically. So we were in the third or the fourth and fifth centuries. After the fifth century, getting into the sixth and seventh centuries, we see a number of fascinating developments. I'll mention four that we've talked about, the growth of monasticism, the next two ecumenical councils, which from a Protestant perspective also represent the final two ecumenical councils that are considered authoritative. So that's the second and third councils at Constantinople, which affirm that Christ has two natures and he has two wills. And then also the rise of Islam as a rival uh, religion and military threat. We talked about that last week. And then fourth, the growth of the, uh, the papacy or the papacy, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So that's the, uh, the sixth and seventh century. And that brings us to kind of the setting, the background for our topic today, which is again, the road to the Holy Roman Empire. In order to tell that story, we'll focus on four men. So four men that you'll learn about today, uh, in particular, Charles Martel, Pepin III, uh, Charles the Great, and then Otto the First. Those are the four guys that we'll talk about. But first, why are we telling this story in particular? Why are we doing an entire lesson on church history in the West in particular? 
uh, as, uh, as distinguished from the East or the South or whatever it might be. And so when it comes to understanding the role of the West and the role of Europe in the history of the church, there are two errors that we need to avoid. The first one is that we just read uh, all of church history through the lens of the West and through Europe, and we dismiss other traditions, other developments that occur outside of the West, to assume that there's nothing significant that happens uh, in the East or in Africa or elsewhere. Historically, some have uh, kind of done that. Some have perhaps ignored non-Western traditions. But the other danger that we need to avoid as well is that we dismiss or we downplay the unique developments that actually happen in the West. That's particularly the case today. That's a danger that we see uh, today when, uh, when focusing on the West is said to be ethnocentric or racist or something. So let me give you three reasons why we shouldn't be afraid of highlighting the particular historical developments in the West while recognizing that uh, the church and church history isn't limited to what happens in the West. But these are three reasons why there's kind of a particular unique sort of perspective that we get by focusing on the church in the West. The first one is because the East is a bit more monolithic due to political stability. They don't undergo as much uh, political change as the West does. And then there's also certain assumptions in Eastern Orthodoxy that make it more, uh, more uh, static. And, uh, and so we'll talk about that next week. But that's the first reason. The East is a bit more monolithic than the West. Second, because as we talked about last week, Islam is going to effectively stop the spread of Christianity in the Middle East and in, uh, in Africa during this period. So with the exception of the Crusades and uh, a few other things that we'll talk about uh, over the next few weeks, there isn't nearly as much significant Christian history that takes place in those region, regions. And then third, because things like the Reformation occur in the West, uh, and thus um, uh, much of the significant theological convictions that we share today are tied to what happens in the West in particular. If you want to understand the Reformation, if you want to understand the Enlightenment, if you want to understand European history or American history, if you want to understand denominations, all those kinds of things, then you need to understand the particular developments that take place in church history in the West. In other words, uh, certainly not all, but most of the major developments in church history play out in the West, and that's uh, thus in the story that we're going to look at today. But uh, by the way, We're going to to look at these four men, Charles Martel, Pepin III, Charles the Great, and Otto I, not because they were great theologians, like an Athanasius or an Augustine, not because they're examples of, uh, of piety and holiness that we should emulate, but rather because in God's sovereignty, his kingdom advances, and sometimes it runs parallel to, and sometimes it intersects the kingdoms of men. So in the story of world history, we also see the story of God's redemptive purposes playing out. And so even through flawed men, even through political maneuvering, even through corrupt popes, and so forth. And we see that in the Bible as well. In the Bible, God works through godly kings like David and uh, Josiah. But God also works out his sovereign purposes through ungodly leaders. Guys like Pharaoh or Cyrus or Nebuchadnezzar or the Jewish chief priests or Herod or Pontius Pilate. And so God's sovereignty over the nations never stopped. It's not like it ended after the epistles or after the book of Acts or something like that. The hearts of kings are still in God's hand to turn whichever way he will. And so we see that in these four men today. So let's begin 
with Charles Martel. Charles was the leader of the Frankish people. Who are the Franks? You probably think that they were French, right? Franks, French, but that's not actually correct. Instead, they were actually Germanic. And the Franks had invaded Gaul in 355. Where was Gaul? I put a map in your notes so you can get some sort of idea. Gaul is this huge swath of land in Western Europe that encompasses uh, most of modern France, Luxembourg, Belgium, Switzerland, Northern Italy, the Netherlands, and Germany. And so the Franks had invaded this area in 355, and they would eventually control just about the entirety of it, but we'll get to that. Has anyone ever heard uh, the word the Merovingians? Anyone ever heard of the Merovingians? If you've seen the Matrix uh, trilogy, then you might have heard of the Merovingians. Well, the Franks were ruled by the Merovingian dynasty, which is called that because it means sons of Merovic, who was a, 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 an early leader of the Merovingians. And his son, Merovic's son, Kilderic, or Childeric, became the first Merovingian king. And Childeric had a son named Clovis, all right? And Clovis is significant for two reasons in particular. First, he was the first king, the, uh, the first Merovingian king to unite all the Frankish tribes. And then second, because he converted to Christianity. And he was baptized in 496, and according to tradition at the time, that meant that his kingdom uh, became, quote unquote, Christian as well. So he converts to Christianity, he was baptized in 496, therefore the Frankish people became, quote unquote, Christian. So for the next 250 years, the Merovingians ruled a Christian Frankish kingdom. At least they kind of ruled. Carl talked about this a little bit last week. By the early eighth century, the Merovingians were kind of like the Queen of England today. She's technically the sovereign, yet she's more of a figurehead. The actual power is in the prime minister or in parliament, and that was the case among the Franks as well. As one medieval historian wrote, nothing was left to the king except to be happy with the royal title and to sit on the throne with his flowing hair and long beard and to behave as if he had authority. Now, put a pin in the flowing hair. We'll come back to that later. But the point is that the king was, uh, <laughs> was actually a token. He was a straw man. The real power came from the most formidable nobleman who was called the mayor of the palace. You might remi- uh, remember that from last week. Carl talked about that. Doesn't sound like the title of the most powerful person in the, uh, the kingdom, the mayor of the palace, but it was. The mayor of the palace was the most influential and most powerful landowner in the land, and he was the de facto ruler of the Franks. And in 714, a guy named Charles Martel became mayor of the palace. Now, Martel wasn't his surname, like my surname is Ashley. His last name wasn't actually Martel, it was a nickname. It means the hammer, which is an awesome nickname. Jim Adler is the Texas hammer. Charles was the Frankish hammer, right? Sounds a bit less intimidating than the Texas Hammer, but still a great nickname. Why was he called the Hammer? Because he was quite the warrior. This particularly came up in the Battle of Tours in 732. Carl talked about last week, if you recall. Islam is expanding. It is unchecked, growing across the globe. And area after area after area was falling to them like dominoes. And then Tours was one of the, the, the first successful resistances to the threat. In fact, after this battle, Islam would never again provide a significant threat to central 
Europe. Without this outcome, without what happens uh, at, uh, at Tours, this lesson that we're talking about today might be in Arabic because Islam would have just kept going like the Energizer Bunny. But the tide was turned at Tours and that was under the leadership of Charles Martel. And the hammer had two sons, Carloman and Pepin. But it's Pepin in particular that we need to know about. Pepin was born around 714, which is the same year that his dad, Charles, became mayor of the palace. So that was a big year for their family, like 2016 for my family. I came to Parkway two months later, had my daughter, bought a house, added two more kids when I hired Zach and Tim. Now, Pepin, his dad had a sweet nickname. What was that? The Hammer, right? And his son is going to have a sweet nickname as well. His son's name is Charles. He's going to be known as Charles the Great or Charlemagne. So his dad is the Hammer, his son is the Great, and Pepin had a nickname too. Anybody know it? The Short, right? Got the short end stick on that one, right? Your dad is the Hammer, your son is the Great, and you are the short, and uh, so talk about a letdown. But despite this diminutive sort of nickname, Pepin had a very large influence on European history. And that influence takes uh, shape starting in 741. 741, Pepin succeeds his dad as mayor of the palace. And then 10 years later, there's a little squabble down south in Italy. A group called the Lombards had captured the capital of the Italian government, which wasn't in Rome at the time, but the Lombards were threatening to capture Rome if the Pope didn't pay tribute or taxes to them. The Pope at the time was a guy named Zachary, Pope Zachary. Zach never lets me forget, there's never been a Pope Jeff. I remind him Luther thought the Pope was the Antichrist. So anyway, <laughs> Pope Zach, he appealed to Pepin and he asked for help. So Pepin says, I'd love to help you, but I'm just the mayor of the palace. All right, the Merovingians are still the kings. If only I were king, I could probably help. So Zach said, done. And in 751, the Pope declared the mayor of the palace the true king of the Franks. And thus began what is called the Carolingian dynasty. Carolingian being from the Latin word for Pepin's father, Charles. Charles in Latin is Carolus. Like my buddy and I went to the Toyota dealership, saw a lot of Carolus, all right? So three years later, in 754, the new pope, who's a guy named Stephen II, he crossed the Alps, which is highly significant, and then he personally appoints Pepin as, quote, the chosen of the Lord. So it has this biblical allusion to Samuel anointing David, the priestly office appointing the king of God's people, and thus begins an alliance between the Franks and the Roman church. And that alliance would shape the entire story of the church in the West, the saga of the papacy, and the history of Europe. So it's a big deal. And in that big deal was some quid pro quo, a bit of bartering between the Pope and the king. On one hand, Pepin gets to be king. That's really cool. But in return, the Pope gets a few things. He not only gets some muscle from the Franks, but he also gets some land, what are called the Papal States, a strip of territory, the middle of Italy, going from east uh, to west, from coast uh, to coast. And that gift of land is called the Donation of Pepin in history. And it was pretty significant because the papacy ex exercised some degree of, uh, of temporal authority over that land until the 19th century 
and the creation of the modern state of Italy. By the way, this is also uh, the time period in which a counterfeit document called the Donation of Constantine was forged. This counterfeit document called the Donation of Constantine was forged, and that document claimed that Constantine himself, the great emperor Constantine, had, uh, had given certain lands to the pope at the time, a pope named Sylvester, which doesn't sound very papal, but according to the document, Sylvester had baptized Constantine and had healed him from leprosy, and in in return, Constantine gave the pope some land, and Constantine also declared that the papacy in Rome was the supreme bishop in the church, even superior to the bishop of Constantinople. Now, that has two effects. Number one, it strengthens the papal claim to apostolic succession and the keys of the church by suggesting that it has primacy over all other bishops, over Constantinople and so forth. But second, it also gives precedent to Pepin's donation by suggesting that Pepin is merely giving back to the Pope what Constantine had already given. But again, this was a counterfeit document that was forged for political purposes, all right? Apparently, fake news is not just some modern issue. Now again, this, uh, this alliance between the Franks and the papacy would affect the course of European politics and religion for centuries. So let's talk about some of the effects of this treaty. Number one, again, it created the papal uh, states, which played a major role in Italian politics until the late 19th century. Number two, it accelerated and it fueled the separation of the East from the West because it gives the Pope military might independent of the East. You gotta understand, traditionally, the Byzantines, which is the empire of the East, the Byzantines to the East were the only Christian allies to Rome before this. So there was always some degree of political glue that kind of held East and West together, that held Rome and Constantinople together. As long as Rome needed Constantinople for military purposes, there was a strong motivation to kind of work out their differences. But once Rome now has another ally, the already growing schism between Rome and Constantinople, between East and West, will simply grow larger and will fracture and will fray. And 300 years later, the fracture will be complete with the creation of the Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Not as two different voices within one unified church, but as two separate churches. And then lastly, another uh, final effect of this, there's more, but the final that we'll talk about uh, the effects of this treaty is ironically, this alliance that's formed between the uh, Pope and the Frankish king actually formed the conditions for the later intense rivalry between the Pope and the Frankish king. So here was the root question. We'll see it come up historically uh, over and over again. Should the church rule the state or should the state rule the church. You see, there is no true separation of church and state in this worldview. Church and state are inherently mixed in this time period. So that question comes up time and again historically is, uh, does the church rule the state or does the state control the church? Who has primacy, the pope or the king? And we'll come back to that a couple of times. Now, Pepin had a number of kids, including Charles, Carloman, and Pepin, apparently names are in short order. Everyone just named their kids Charles, Pepin, and Carloman. The family tree reads like George Foreman's, who basically said, I've got too much brain damage. I've got to spend all my time working on this grill. And so I'm going to name all of my kids George Foreman, 
It's actually what he did. So check out that family tree. Check out uh, the family tree of Charles the Great and Pepin and so forth, and then also George Foreman. So now you get why these nicknames are important. There's far too many Charleses or Pepins to keep track of without these nicknames. So let's talk about Pepin the Short's son, Charles, Charles the Great or Charlemagne. Quick survey, raise your hand if you've heard of Charlemagne. Not the radio personality, but the Frankish king. Now raise your hand if you think you know a lot about Charlemagne. All right, a lot of hands on the first thing, not any hands on the second one. He's one of those names that everyone knows, everyone's heard of Charlemagne, nobody knows anything about. But he's a fascinating character in world history and in church history. He was born in 748 and he came to power in 768 when he was about 20 years old. And he was a rather large and imposing figure. He was reported to be almost seven feet tall with a bright face and, quote, long white hair. And this was the custom of the day. Remember the whole flowing hair thing I said we'd come back to? Well, we're here. In fact, the Merovingian kings, remember them? Before the Carolingian kings, that is descended from uh, Charles, the Merovingians descended from Merovec. They were just the figureheads. Anyway, the Merovingians so loved long hair that whenever there was a rival to the throne, they would simply shave his head. And then he was therefore disqualified from ever ruling. Take that, Carl. Well, another interesting story uh, related to uh, hair, you might remember King Clovis. He was the first Merovingian king to convert to Christianity. Well, his wife was named Clotilda. And Clotilda was once faced with the decision of whether her grandsons should face the scissors or the sword. Should they be executed or humiliated by having their heads shaved? And so someone gave her that, this was not a hypothetical, like a would you rather or something like that. Someone actually said, we're gonna do one or the other to your grandsons. And so she responded, it is better for me to see them dead rather than shorn if they are not raised to the kingship. It's a grandmother a year forward right there. <laughs> that has nothing to do with Charlemagne except to show how serious they were about their hair back then. And Charles had it in abundance. He also had an abundance of ambition. So Charlemagne had been intervening, intervening in Italian politics for years. For example, when the Lombards again invaded papal territories, Charlemagne defeated them. And then he did something uh, interesting that hadn't been done before. Charlemagne proclaimed himself their king in 774. And that will be a prelude to events that happened 25 years later when on April 25th, 799, Pope Leo III was kidnapped. He was kidnapped in this mutiny by some Roman rebels. And those rebels accused him of perjury and of adultery. And so for sinning with his sight and his speech, sight in adultery, speech in perjury, they determined to free him of these tempting members of his body by gouging out his eyes and cutting out his tongue. Now, fortunately for the Pope, before they could actually carry out the sentence, some of his supporters, who were apparently like medieval Navy SEALs, they rescued him. But then whenever they got back to Rome, this intense fighting broke out between these rival factions. So the Pope appealed for help. And to whom should he appeal? Well, to the traditional protector of the papacy, the king of the Franks, who at the time was Charles the Great. 
Although at this point of time, that probably wasn't yet his nickname, but for the sake of clarity, I'll just refer to him as Charlemagne from here on out. So Charlemagne, he sets out, he crosses the Alps, and he provides security for this uh, major assembly of bishops and nobles and diplomats and rebels to meet together and to kind of hash out all of their differences. And the result was that on December 23rd in 800, some sources also say 799, 799, 800, the Pope swore an oath of innocence, which kind of purged him of these accusations and the mutiny was resolved. That was December 23rd. So two days later, which is significant because that's Christmas, December 25th, uh, 800, uh, Christmas Day, while worshiping in St. Peter's Basilica, Pope Leo approaches Charlemagne, he places a golden crown on his head, and he says these words, not in English, obviously, to Charles, the most pious, crowned Augustus by God, to the great peacemaking emperor, long life and victory. So in this, Charlemagne was declared the Imperator Romanorum, the emperor of the Romans, the symbolic move of enormous consequence. Now, as with Pepin, there was a bit of a tit for tat, quid pro quo. The Pope needed protection from his enemies. The king needed divine sanction for his rule. And so you see some of this uh, already even before this, where Charlemagne writes a letter to Pope Leo in uh, Pope Leo the Third in 796. And he says this, kind of laying out this quid pro quo. You give me this, I give you that. And so Charlemagne says, it is our part with the help of divine holiness to defend by armed strength the holy church of Christ everywhere from the, on, uh, the outward onslaughts of the pagans and the ravages of the infidels and to strengthen within the knowledge of the Catholic faith. It is your part, most holy father, to help our, army, uh, our armies with your hands lifted up to God like Moses so that by your intercession and by the leadership and gift of God, the Christian people may everywhere and always have victory over the enemies of his holy name and that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified throughout the world. But for the first time in 324 years after the last Roman emperor, remember him, uh, Romulus Augustus or Gustulus or something like that, uh, after the last Roman emperor was deposed, 324 years later, there was a new emperor in town. Now let's talk about a few of the historical consequences of Charlemagne's reign. First, there was the great military expansion that happened under his reign. On the southern border, in 778, he crossed the Pyrenees, which divides modern France and Spain, and he drives the Muslims back all the way to the Ebro or the Iber River in Spain, which basically meant that rather than controlling the entire uh, land of Spain, Muslims only controlled about half. And so by the end of his reign, uh, the Islamic threat to Europe was effectively neutralized. He also conquered the Bavarians and the Saxons, which were the last of the independent Germanic tribes. And that was a brutal effort though. It took him like 32 campaigns over years of fighting. We'll talk more about that shortly. And then to the east, he drove back the Slavs and the Avars in six campaigns. And he created the East Mark in what is today Austria to guard the, uh, the eastern border. And so all in all, he basically doubled the size of the kingdom in his days. In fact, Europe would not again see such a massive unification until two different, uh, except for two other times. One is under Napoleon in the 19th century. 
and the second is under Hitler in the 20th century. So that was the first thing, though. There was this military expansion that is a historical consequence of Charlemagne's reign. A second is that there was a great development in regards to education. This is massively important that you understand this. Charlemagne himself was barely literate, but he knew the importance of education, and he established this foundation of learning that would drive the Middle Ages. In fact, this time is called the Carolingian Renaissance, not to be confused with the later Renaissance that happens in Italy, but the Carolingian Renaissance. Remember, Carolingian is from the Latin word for Charles Carolus. And so this was a time of cultural rebirth. One of the main developments was the emergence of monasteries as centers of learning and culture. And so in 789, Charlemagne declared that every monastery must have a school for the education of boys in singing, in arithmetic, and in grammar. And when we talk more about the Middle Ages in the weeks to come, we'll talk about the emergence of the university as the foundation of education. But in the ninth and 10th centuries, the schools that are attached to monasteries and cathedrals were the centers of scholarship. In fact, these schools that are attached to monasteries and cathedrals will serve as models for the, uh, the emergence of the university in the Middle Ages. These monasteries not only supported uh, education in general, but also were the uh, kind of the foundation for the creation of libraries and for the production of books, particularly the production of the Bible, which was by hand, obviously, right? They didn't have printers back then. They didn't even have, they didn't even have printing presses back then. And so many ancient works would not even be uh, would not be extent, would not uh, exist today if not for the work of these monasteries and copying and storing these manuscripts. So that was one of the major developments. And to teach in these schools, Charlemagne imported scholars from all around the empire. At his school in the capital city, I'm probably gonna butcher this because I don't speak French, I La Chapelle, the, uh, the teacher in charge was one of the leading scholars of his day, a guy named Alcuin who wrote textbooks in grammar, spelling, rhetoric, and logic. One of his uh, most famous quotes is, ye lads whose age is fitted for reading, learn. The years go by like running water, waste not the teachable days in idleness. So as a result of these developments within a generation, ignorance became a crime, as priests were even jailed for forgetting various truths that were mandatory for their vocation. And also during this time, writing was reimagined and it began to resemble much more of what we think of when we think of the printed page today. Historically, Greek or Latin was written without any punctuation, without any sort of spacing between words or sentences. But in this period, you, we saw the introduction of the capital in lowercase letters uh, to introduce new sentences. And you also get the development of punctuation. Without Charlemagne, we wouldn't have things like the question mark. So education was this huge effect of his reign, uh, reign. Another consequence of his reign was this continued struggle for primacy between the Pope and the emperor. Every time that the alliance between the Frankish king and the papacy was ratified, this question comes up, who has the ultimate authority? As Michael Scott asks on The Office, who's more impressive, the man who captivates thousands or the man who captivates the man who captivates thousands. So the emperor is the emperor. That's significant. But the Pope is the man who had crowned the emperor. So which is more powerful? The one who wears the crown or the one who places it on his head? 
which is supreme, the sword of the kingdom or the keys of the kingdom. And so that lingering question will loom over the Middle Ages, and that was a consequence, again, of Charlemagne's reign. Regardless, the kingdom was thought to kind of possess two arms, if you will. You have the eternal and spiritual arm that's presided over by the Pope, and then you have the physical and temporal arm presided over by the emperor. That's one of the effects of, uh, of his reign. Another, is the, another consequence is that uh, there is this reestablishment of law and order in Western Europe after three centuries of relative disorder and chaos. Now, this law and order was a bit of a mixed bag. Some of it was good, but others not so good. Here's an example of some of the laws that were enforced during this time. Parents who didn't baptize their children within one year were fined. Church attendance was mandatory. And various crimes were even punishable by death. These capital crimes like eating meat during Lent, cremating the dead because of historic uh, associations uh, between paganism and cremation, pretending to be baptized was punishable by death, as was the theft of church property. So think about that next time you steal one of our pins, right? In other words, you see this uh, blending of church and state together during Charlemagne's reign. And this blending has some uh, unfortunate consequences. We talked before about how it took him 32 campaigns, this brutal years-long campaign to conquer the, uh, the Saxons and others. But uh, in doing so, his efforts to not only conquer them, but also to quote-unquote convert them to Christianity were not very Christian. Basically, he just kind of copied the worldly model of convert or die that the Muslims had been pursuing for centuries. And the message, be baptized or beheaded, might get people into church, but it doesn't really change the heart. But this will provide a bit of justification for some of the later crusades that we'll talk about. Charlemagne's treatment of the Saxons provided a model for the future militarization of Christianity. So the result was that Christianity was by far the dominant religion in Europe for the next 1,000 years. But that particular form of Christianity was oftentimes nominal at best. It didn't really rely on the change of heart. It relied upon mere sort of pressure, external pressure. And so that sort of nominalism will mark much of the Middle Ages as we'll see in the coming weeks. And so this is the birth of the idea of Christendom, the union of the sacred and the secular, the civil and the ecclesial, a society that was quote unquote Christian from the ground up, bound together by a common faith, culture, and government though spread over this huge geographical area. So Christendom is this idea of a civilization in which Christianity is the dominant religion and in which this dominance uh, is uh, backed up by social and legal compulsions. And so you see that idea affect not only much of Europe in the Middle Ages, but also in the Reformation in places like Calvin's Geneva and even in the birth of America and so forth. So this is, uh, this is uh, the, the kind of the story of Christendom that we see even today as we kind of wrestle with. This is the birth of that ideal under Charlemagne. Now this imperial archetype that's begun under Charlemagne persisted as a political force in Europe until 1806 with the rise of another self-styled emperor. Anyone know his name? Napoleon, not dynamite, but Bonaparte, right? 
So unfortunately, when Charlemagne dies in 814, the empire's holdings are far too vast. Again, he had increased it almost double. And the nobility were far too powerful to be held together. In other words, Charlemagne's reputation had been the glue that held the empire together. So after he dies, the empire begins to fray. In the absence of a unified, compelling leader, and in the presence of these frequent invasions, invasions uh, by the Vikings to the north and other groups, there was a desire for more localized uh, protection, and that set the stage for the medieval practice of feudalism, in which people surrender their, their land and their, even their selves to noblemen in return for protection. So feudalism will then be the major European form of government through uh, much of the rest of the Middle Ages. Let's fast forward a bit. As mentioned, Charlemagne died in 814 and the empire suffered. <laughs> Externally, there's mounting pressure from Scandinavian, Hungarian invasions. Internally, there was a struggle for primacy among his offspring, given that the empire didn't pass to just one offspring, but instead was divided among all the eligible sons, kind of like an inheritance uh, today. And this eventually, this split eventually uh, led to the creation of what are today France and Germany. So uh, Charlemagne's kids basically inherited what is now France and Germany. So most of the rest of the 9th century and the early 10th century was what some call a dark century of lead and iron because of constant warfare, internal warfare, external warfare. So a dark century of lead and iron. But the ideal of a universal political empire after the likes of the old Roman Empire never really died. It just kind of smoldered in the ashes of the dissolution of Charlemagne's empire. And then it erupts again in the eastern section of the former empire in what is today called Germany. So the, fir, uh, the, the sparks first began to catch in 919 as the German tribal dukes desired some sort of unification to help defend their areas against Vikings and Slavs. So they select a guy named Henry the Fowler as their ruler. And he was successful in actually driving out the invaders. And then Henry was succeeded by his son, Otto I. In 936, Otto I succeeds Henry the Fowler as the ruler of the Germans. And Otto was known for a few things. He was known for his outward piety. He was known for his bravery. And he was known for what one writer deemed the quite spectacular hairiness of his chest. The original David Hasselhoff, right? Hairy-chested, beloved by the Germans. Oh yeah, Otto was also known as the first to be called the Holy Roman Emperor, but we'll get to that. Now, originally Otto only ruled over Germany, but he couldn't resist being interested in furthering his holdings. And so since he considered himself a faithful Christian, he was concerned with current affairs occurring in Italy where the Pope, John XII, was being threatened. Now, John XII was a very immoral person. We'll talk about him when we talk about the papacy. He was a very immoral person, but he's still the Pope, and so Otto sought to help him. So Otto crossed the Alps, and he gave aid, as had Pepin and Charlemagne, from whom he was not biologically descended, but to whom he looked for this model of imperial design and rule. In exchange for his help, the Pope crowned Otto as emperor of the, quote, Holy Roman Empire, which uh, the philosopher Voltaire helpfully reminds us was neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. 
the Holy Roman Empire wasn't really an empire. It was instead this loosely joined union of smaller kingdoms which held power in Western and Central Europe from 962 to 1806, 962 to 1806, so almost a thousand years. But the revival wasn't really so much of the revival of the empire as it was the revival of the imperial title. But the title was what mattered because it provided papal sanction to Otto's rule. In return, what do you think Otto gave the Pope? What do all the kings give the Pope? Two things, the promise of protection and what? Land, right? He reaffirmed the donation of Pepin. He basically said that the papacy had claim on most of the land of modern day Italy. So once again, all Central Europe was united under a German emperor. And this lasted for nearly 1,000 years until 1806 when Napoleon brought about the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, if there was a previous struggle for primacy between the emperor and the pope, that was brought to a head in the Holy Roman Empire over the 10th and 11th centuries. For example, Otto III squashed a faction of Roman nobles and then forced an election of his own cousin, Bruno, who was made Pope Gregory V. And things went back and forth in their power struggle until the 12th century when Pope Innocent III humiliated and defeated the emperor and ended German interference in Italy. We'll talk about that uh, more specifically when we talk about the history of the papacy in a few weeks. But for now, let's talk about a few of the effects of Otto's rise to Holy Roman Emperor. Number one, in accepting the title, the German king recognized the Pope's authority to confer the imperial title. This is partly why the Pope will eventually ultimately win in the battle uh, over the question of who has supremacy, the Pope or the Emperor. The fact that the uh, Emperor or the King had submitted to the Pope and granted the King the, rec- uh, the Pope the, the authority to confer the title is part of the reason why the Pope will eventually win that struggle. Second, the imperial title was restricted to German kings. For nearly a, a millennium, every single person who held the title of Emperor was a German king. And then third, the Emperor in return, was obligated to the church in various ways. Protection, gifts of land, so forth. This also resulted in centuries of quote-unquote interference in papal affairs by the emperor, which the popes hated, but ultimately actually helped to purify some of the muck and mire of the corruption in the church. Certainly not all. We'll talk a lot about the corruption in the church in the Middle Ages, but without the, uh, the imperial sort of uh, interference, it would have been even more. So let's recap what we've talked about today. In our lesson today, here are a few of the questions that we sought to answer. Hopefully you have a better understanding of each of these. Number one, why did the Roman Empire fall? Number two, in what sense was it restored? Number three, what were some of the factors that contributed to the split between the East and the West that ultimately led to the division between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? Number four, what were the reasons for the historic alliance between the Pope and Frankish or German kings? Number five, what was the historical context for the Christianization of most of Europe? Number six, what were the factors leading to the emergence of the idea of Christendom? Number seven, what is the foundation for the advancements in education that occur in the West throughout the Middle Ages? So that's the road from the dissolution of the Roman Empire to the creation of a new empire, at least having the title of an empire, the Holy Roman Empire. 
And this will be the context in which most of our conversations on the Middle Ages, the papacy, the Crusades, even the Reformation will be set over the next few months. But first, we need to consider the major events leading to the 11th century schism between the East and the West and the creation of this idea called Eastern Orthodoxy. And we'll talk about that next week. For now, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness. I thank you for this history, these flawed men, some of whom seem to really love you and some of whom maybe seem to just use uh, religion as a, as, as a tool. And, uh, and so uh, I'm grateful, regardless though, that uh, your hand has moved history in such a way that it finds us where we are today. And, uh, and so I pray uh, that you would continue to, to help us to Uh, to be students of history, that we might be humbled by it, and we might be grateful for your grace in it. And uh, and so I pray that you would continue to bless us as we uh, continue to worship through through Q&A and through song and through gathering and preaching and all these kinds of things. We pray these things uh, because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen.